Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode, I bring you a piece on earthquakes in the state. I spoke with two experts on Nevada's tectonic makeup and our preparedness level for a large earthquake. Then, reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and photographer David Calvert talk about their recent story on Secret Pass Ranch in Elko, where a third-generation rancher and his family are focusing on regenerative ranching. At the end of the show, reporter Tabitha Mueller and I interview Dr. Mark Pandori, the director of the State Public Health Lab, about the new Omicron variant of the coronavirus, what to do if you're sick, where the pandemic is headed now, and more. Nevada's no stranger to earthquakes, but the rise of social media and live streaming helps people share the moments with each other. Take the earthquake that happened during a hearing in the 2021 legislative session. Clearly going up in price and... I'm gonna speed up my presentation. It's the third floor. I I don't think I've ever been on anything but the first floor in an earthquake. That expands Medicaid coverage for certain pregnant women. And we are in the midst of an earthquake. Because of all this seismic activity last year, I took it upon myself to learn a little bit more about earthquakes. After all, the last time I had learned anything about them was when I was in like the sixth grade. I started by talking to Jim Falds, who's a research professor at UNR, the director of the Nevada Bureau of Mines and Geology, and the Nevada State Geologist. He's been studying the Walker Lane, which is an area of seismic significance in Nevada for almost 25 years. So to start out, I just wanted to know, are, are we seeing more earthquakes than normal? Not necessarily. They do come and go, of course, and they can occur in clusters. But we are in a seismically active region. And as many might know, we're the third most seismically active state after uh, Alaska and California. And so we can expect to see earthquakes in any given year or period of time. Nevada being seismically active is something reporter Daniel Rothberg and I learned this July while recording this very podcast. Every place is a little bit different. Whoa. Are you okay? Yeah. You feeling that? No. Oh my God, really? Sorry, it's a pretty big earthquake. Okay, I felt that a little bit. But... I'm still feeling it. Holy cow. It's still, okay, I think I'm good. That's like, that startled me. Sorry. How often are we seeing those, those ones that when you log on to Twitter, everyone on Twitter is saying, did anyone feel that? Did everyone feel that earthquake? We can expect an earthquake that we would feel, you know, probably every, maybe every year, every couple of years, something like that. There are statistics for the larger earthquakes. For example, uh, a magnitude five earthquake in the Reno or Carson City area, you would expect a 90% probability of having such an earthquake every 50 years. And of course, the probability goes way up for smaller earthquakes, 4.0 magnitude, 3.0 magnitude, and it's around a three where folks are gonna feel it. And so we, we have a lot of those and a decent amount of fours, fewer amounts of fives, but we're, we're gonna feel an earthquake probably at least every couple of years in this area. So you might see picture frames falling and the room shaking, but what's actually happening below our feet? When we talk about the state as a whole, what is the tectonic makeup of Nevada? Uh, In general, we'll expect to see more in western Nevada. 
So the tectonic sort of framework of Nevada is that the, the, the real important feature is something called the Walker Lane, and that's primarily in western Nevada. That's a really interesting part of the tectonic setting of western North America because it's actually accommodating around 20 or 25 percent of the motion between the Pacific and North American plates. So that makes western Nevada kind of more active. But all of Nevada is undergoing what we call crustal stretching. It's extending. And we're actually the fastest growing state, tectonically speaking. We add a couple of basketball courts every year, a couple of acres to Nevada every year. And so every part of the state has some level of seismic hazard. But the, the greatest amount is in the western part of the state where we actually have that plate motion or part of the plate motion. Uh, interjecting here really quick to just mention that we are literally the fastest growing state. I thought that was an exciting fact. Is the Walker Lane a fault the way that we hear about like the San Andreas Fault or, or, or what is it more of an area? Yeah, it's, it's more of an area. It's not as organized as the San Andreas Fault. So the San Andreas Fault is the primary plate boundary, it takes up about 75, 80% of that motion. And it's side by side motion. It's called right lateral motion. And it's on the order of about four centimeters per year, inch and a half or so along the San Andreas Fault. And, and so the San Andreas Fault in Southern California, near the Mexican border, and you can walk on that fault all the way up to San Francisco, more or less. It's a nice continuous gash in the Earth's crust. The Walker Lane is a lot less organized than that. It's a system of disorganized faults because it's only 20% or so of that plate motion and it, it just hasn't meshed into one continuous fault. This makes things a little more complicated in terms of predicting seismic hazards and so on because we, in a way, have more faults. Those faults don't have the potential to have as large of an earthquake as the San Andreas, but they still have the potential to cause a, a major earthquake. Is there any way to predict when we can expect to see another earthquake? Yeah, it's really very, very difficult to predict earthquakes. And, and that's why we have sort of general probabilities. Sometimes it happens every 150 years and then there's a gap for whatever reason. And maybe you're safe for 300 or 400 years. So in Nevada, it's even a little bit more difficult to predict because the recurrence intervals of major earthquakes on most of our faults are on the order of thousands of years. Another person I talked to was Janelle Woodward. She's the state hazard mitigation officer. It's her job to help prepare Nevada for any natural disasters, including earthquakes. One of the things that she helps with is coordinating retrofitting buildings that need it. Building damage from an earthquake depends on a lot of factors, such as the proximity to the epicenter of the earthquake, the type of motion that's created from it, and if there's a lot of aftershocks or not. So while there's no hard and fast rule into what the size of the earthquake is to inspect damage, she said that around a 6.0 is where the state would want to go out and evaluate buildings for damage. But it would have to be close enough to the populated area. Yeah. So if we had a very large earthquake, maybe say like one that happened like 89 in, in San Francisco, right? Like those mm -hmm. are huge earthquakes. Is, is Nevada prepared for something like that if it does happen? I think from a preparedness site that we are pretty prepared for something like that. Unfortunately, when our earthquakes happen a little bit far apart, so it's not like we're 
constantly having things that people feel. So I think that part of the issue maybe is more that people forget to duck cover and hold on. <laughs> you know, they want to do that old, let me run into the door. Or worse would be running outside because you don't know what's falling off of a building or might fall off. So I, I would say public awareness and preparedness. With potentially thousands of years before another quote unquote big one, why does this matter? When you're, when you're considering emergency management, where do earthquakes rank compared to floods, fire? I mean, fire seems to be the big thing, especially in northern Nevada, right? I mean, the last couple of summers, it's just been smoke and yeah. fires all the time. Earthquakes are actually in the top three. So a wildfire, uh, flood, and earthquake, top three hazards in Nevada in the state. And when they're being ranked, they often will trade places. This is number, earthquake might be number one this year and five years, it might be flood or wildfire. So they change interchangeably, but earthquake stays in that top three of our hazards. The difference between earthquakes and say fires is frequency. Fires happen every year, floods don't happen every year, but they are much more frequent than the major earthquakes, which are spread out by decades or even centuries. So with earthquakes being in the top three hazards, I wanted to know if we had money to handle a major earthquake hitting a populated area. The federal government gives a certain amount of funding to each state through the National Earthquake Hazard Reduction Program. In terms of state funding though, Janelle said that there is little to none at the moment and that legislators may not think about it because earthquakes that cause damage aren't happening as regularly as say floods or fires. We have been trying to get our counties and our larger counties have done this already. But to take a survey of the building types, do we have unreinforced masonry buildings, which are the more unsafe buildings? We need to know where those are so that if something happens, we know where to respond to. So when was the last really significant earthquake in Nevada? Here's Jim Faltz again. We've had quite a few large earthquakes in Nevada. The largest was in 1915, uh, 7.3 magnitude earthquake in Pleasant Valley, south of the Winnemucca. In Owens Valley in 1872, there was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. There's been about 20 that have occurred in the region where you've had surface rupture, rupture of the, of the actual surface of the earth. And so all of those earthquakes then have been widely felt. We've had several low sevens in Nevada. Is there anything that people can do to prepare their own homes or themselves if there was an earthquake to happen close to their, where they live? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to have basically you need a, a few days of supply of water and food because a major earthquake could could rupture water lines, etc. Could rupture gas lines in the region, and so we could be out without uh, power and water for a few days. While the likelihood of a major earthquake hitting this year or even next year isn't super high, it's still a good idea to have two weeks of provisions on hand. Go to the store and pick up some jugs of water and canned food and a flashlight. You can find a full earthquake preparedness plan online. The bottom line is it's good to be prepared, but there's no reason to go into panic mode. This story was reported, produced, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and Jackie Valley.
Ranching can take a lot out of the land, and how it's done today can affect how productive the land will be in the future. The next segment explores an innovative way that one Nevada ranch is trying to be sustainable for generations to come. All right, well, I am here with reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez and David Calvert, our photographer. And you guys were out at Secret Pass Ranch recently, close to Elko, where, where you're living, Jasmine. This is a, a, a family that's been out there for a really long time. They're doing regenerative ranching, which is a, a pretty interesting form of ranching. And, and you know, so let's start with how you found the story and, and what made you interested in it. Yeah. So the attorney general for Nevada, Aaron Ford, took a trip out to the ranch while he was on a rural tour. Since I was in the area, I went and just met Jared Sorensen, who is the owner of the ranch, lives there with his family. It's him and his wife, Selena, their nine kids. And they recently also became grandparents. His oldest has, you know, just started his own family and has his first child. So I went out there and met them and heard a little bit about their story. And then from then on, kept in touch with Jared and through learning about all of the efforts on his ranch, in addition to having their own private business of selling grass-fed meat, decided that it would be fun to go out and get some photos of this really beautiful area and just spend the day with them to see what their life is like out there. Yeah. So David, tell me a little bit about what you saw when you got out there and how it looks different than a normal ranch. Yeah. So, I mean, we were out there in the, the beginning of winter, so it, it was cold, it was windy. It's hard to sort of tell a lot of the things that they're doing at this time of year, but I've seen photos of the ranch in the springtime and talking with Jared and, and Selena about their thoughts on water and soil and, and what their regenerative practices really do. It, it feels very natural. It feels very, I would say, less less affected by agriculture than some of the, the, the ranches that I photographed in the state. And, and when you talk about regenerative, regenerative ranching, I'm going to have trouble saying that word this entire episode. Um, you are talking about grass-fed meat. What is? What are they selling? They're selling grass-fed meat, organic meat. So as of right now, they're not certified organic, even though they do manage to those standards. Jared mentioned that to him, the regenerative label means more to him, and he feels that the organic standards or labels a lot of those companies are after the label because there's an increased market share and increased profitability people are looking for organic food items these days so what is regenerative farming like what does that mean yeah so it's actually like encompasses a lot of ranching management styles and so this includes trying to take care of the land where like one example that Jared used was that his grandfather and father would get rid of trees. If it wasn't grass, it didn't belong. And so something he's been doing differently is that they leave the trees alone. They let everything grow along the riparian areas where there's a creek and water flowing. And so he thinks that leaving that up helps heal the water cycle, which helps the ranch be more resilient to drought. Nevada is so heavily affected by drought. They don't use pesticides or things like that on their ranch either. A big cornerstone of regenerative ranching is taking care of the soil. So the soil has become a priority because it's one of the biggest markers on the ranch. The livestock spend so much time eating from there and 
all of those different things that affects the livestock, which then affects the meat, which then affects whoever is eating the meat. So that's the way that the Sorensen see it. And so one of their big priorities is to take care of the soil, make sure that the soil is healthy. Yeah, and so they do that in a couple of ways. They're also doing what they described as a, a holistic approach to grazing. So they're moving um, the cattle uh, a little bit more frequently than you would in a, a large pasture. So you're, they're spending less time in, in particular areas, so sort of less damage to those fields and just because something is is labeled organic doesn't necessarily mean that that's good for the environment sometimes what's best for the, for the land and, and for the cattle and, and ultimately for the people that are consuming that meat is care more about things like vegetation and water and and the, t- the health of the topsoil and sort of the biome there than than you do necessarily about that certification yeah and, and one thing that really stood out in the story too was two animals popped up in the story that popped out to me, which was beavers and sage grouse. I don't think of beavers as being out in the middle of the desert. Obviously, when there's water and some trees, you can get some beavers. So tell me a little bit about his, his experience with both the sage grouse and the beavers. Yeah. So he is part of the Nevada Conservation Credit Program. And so he has an active relationship with sage grouse in that way that in being part of this program, he has to conserve 10,000 acres for sage grouse um, habitat protection. He earns credits and then mining or development companies can buy those credits. And the program doesn't only include protecting sage grouse habitat that's already there. It also provides an incentive to create sage grouse habitat where sage grouse could be. So it's just helping create the conditions for sage grouse to be in Nevada where it's not listed on the endangered species list, but its population has been declining. So that's a concern. And this is one of the state's efforts to try and mitigate that. And as for the beaver, Jared mentioned that that is a keystone species in the area. So when they see the beaver come back, they'll know that it's truly sustainable. Ranchers and beavers have had a not great relationship. Historically, they can plug up irrigation ditches. And so ranchers didn't see them in the most positive light. But that's another thing that is changing in this generation, at least on this ranch. You know, Jared wants to see the beavers come back because they can help hold water on the landscape, which, as we mentioned before, helps make their ranching area more resilient to drought. And there is, I've seen beaver in Lamoille Canyon. So I know that they're out there. It was only once, but it was really cool. So David, there were also some photos that you shared uh, on your Twitter that didn't make it into the, the story. Tell me about the day. Tell me about getting out there and, and shooting those photos and, and talking to the people. Yeah, so the day started um, with an interview around their their dining room table. And and while that was going on, the kids were actually in the kitchen and like preparing like sweets for Christmas presents. They were wrapping caramels and they had little chocolate haystacks and and things. And so while while Jasmine was talking with Selena and Jared, I, I drifted in there and hung out with the kids for a while and made some really cool pictures of them in their kitchen. And and then it's it's a hundred year old ranch home, so it's just a cool cool building to be in. They 
have a mud room with all of the like jackets and boots and hats and gloves and everything that their large family needs. And so like there was the process of them getting all dressed to go outside and, and take their group photo. Also gave us the chance to see Jared's Wallapini, which is a greenhouse based off of a, a design from South America. It's, it's sort of dug into the earth. And that didn't make it into the story. And a lot of times the photos I take don't necessarily relate to exactly what we're talking about. But I thought it was an interesting element because we spent all this time talking about regenerative ranching and their sort of thoughts on agriculture and, and, and sustainability. And one of the things that they did during the pandemic was realize that they needed more fresh produce, not just for their family, but also as maybe something that they can sell to community members. And so they they built this this greenhouse that if you take a look at my Twitter, you can see some of the photos. It's They're incredible. They had 50, 60 different kinds of vegetables growing. We were there in December and they were fresh strawberries. And you don't realize that it's like 25 degrees outside. It was it was tropical. <laughs> <laughs> I like your subtle plug of your Twitter there at Calvert Photo if anyone wants to see those pictures. <laughs> like Calvert mentioned, it was freezing out there. I think I was wearing two jackets and my eyes like wouldn't stop crying because the wind was you know, blowing so hard that day. But it was definitely all worth it. Yeah, and I'm just excited because now that Jasmine is in northeastern Nevada, we have a little bit more of a connection to to some of these ranching and agriculture families. And, and I hope it's something that we continue to revisit because when we talk about things like ranching and mining and agriculture, like these, these are very rural stories, but they're a big part of sort of what makes Nevada a state. And the, the environmental impacts of these industries um, are important and as are the economic ones. And I really like that we have a chance to tell more of these stories. So I look forward to more trips with Jasmine out to Lamoille and Clover Valley, Wells. Uh, I think it's something that our readers should look forward to. Yeah, we're really excited to have you out there, Jasmine, and to be reporting on all that stuff. And if you have any stories that you want to pitch Jasmine or any of us, uh, make sure to email us. And uh, Jasmine is jasmine at the nvindy.com. You can also just go to our website. So thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast today. And we look forward to hearing more ranching stories soon. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Joey. Now we have an interview with Dr. Mark Pandori, the director of the Nevada State Public Health Lab. Reporter Tabitha Mueller and I talked with him about all things COVID, especially the Omicron variant, and the difficulty it is to find testing right now during the surge in cases. When the pandemic was subsiding last summer, right, there were a lot less cases being reported. You were obviously probably getting less testing coming into the lab, but now that Omicron's coming in, I feel like you can't find a test anywhere. Last summer, I feel like I could get a test whenever I wanted. Are you expecting to see this ebb and flow continue or? Forever, yeah. If you want to look at testing availability, you look at the incidence of the virus. You go up in the winter time, you come down, you go up in the 4th of July, you come down, you go up in the winter of 2021. So Anytime you have a spike, there's a demand for testing. The testing infrastructure is relatively the same as it was a year ago. And so the demand goes skyrocketing. When the demand is low, it's easy to get a test, as Joey said. Mm. And it's really no more complicated than a supply and demand situation. Omicron has created another testing crush. Now, here at the lab, we're able to handle it a little better because we went from 90 tests a day back in March of 2020 to 3,000 tests a day, but the demand is extremely high and we're seeing many, many more specimens come in. And now we're hearing stories of people waiting in line for four hours to get a test. 
And the reason is that there's so many more people that are getting infected. We still live in a world where we require testing results to participate in society in one way or another. We need a negative results to go to school or to go to work in some instances or to get on a plane. We still live in that in, in a world where we have these requirements. So, so some people really do still need a test result. We still have a lot of parts of society that require it. So I think that contributes to the demand as well. You mentioned the surge in testing. Did we foresee that surge? Is that something that like state officials expected? I, I knew it was coming and a lot of people knew it was coming. And we did in fact gear up to do more testing at the public health lab. People think that we had this problem. We threw a whole lot of money at it. Why isn't there more testing? And the answer to that boils down to a lab that conducts complicated testing like SARS-CoV-2 testing can't be built very quickly. And in Nevada, we have very few of these what are called high complexity labs. And many states don't have many of them. It takes a year or more at least to build a lab. And so that that hasn't really occurred in that short amount of time. And because we didn't increase the number of them, we don't have a huge increase in testing availability. Now, we have attempted to make up for that using at-home rapid testing. The reason those have become so significant is that they're trying to make up for the fact that really in this country, we haven't been able to build a massive laboratory infrastructure in the time since this virus has come about. If somebody does get COVID-19, what isolation and quarantine guidelines should they be following? We've all come to follow the CDC recommendations, and that's generally the best course of action that anybody can take. Those aren't made flippantly. They aren't going to say anything that isn't backed by data. Now, basically what CDC is doing is looking at shedding of virus. How much virus is coming out of an infected individual? How long is it coming out of an infected individual? And how much virus coming out of an individual is relevant? Those are three big questions. And of course, now as variants change, that game changes too because the quality of the virus changes. So let's keep that in mind. But at the moment right now, if you are exposed and you don't have a positive test, right now they're really asking you to monitor your symptoms, wear a mask, and then get tested if you're symptomatic. When are people not contagious anymore. That sort of has gone away because testing is so difficult to obtain. It used to be what we found was people could shed virus for 10 days. That may still be true, but it's really that people are infectious for about five days is what we are thinking here. And so rather than get tested every single time, getting tested maybe once or just monitoring your symptoms, it's very rare for people to be symptomatic beyond five days. And so in order to keep society society together and to keep testing available to people that need it, we're using just more of a time marker to demarcate when you can go back and not necessarily a, you need two, two negative tests in a row to go back. So Omicron, you mentioned it, that it's likely that most people are going to get this. Is the variant life-threatening? Is it less life-threatening? What do we know about this variant and what should people be aware of? Yeah, confidence is now soaring that it is less virulent than all other previous variants. Narrator Joey jumping in here really quick to give you a quick word definition. Virulent, which is the characteristic of something causing the onset of severe illness. So if it's less virulent, it's causing less severe illness. What's happening is that cases are going up. We're comparing that to the number of hospitalizations that we're seeing. And 
hospitalizations are increasing. Do not sugarcoat this, but they aren't increasing in a manner mathematically that would have matched that caseload increase compared to what we saw with something like Delta, which was truly a more virulent virus. So number one, yes, they're going up, but not at the rate that we would have expected, which an explanation for that is twofold, actually. It could be that Omicron is less virulent, but it could be that there's so many vaccinated people experiencing the disease that that's dulling the stats a little bit as well. But the people that are getting hospitalized, intubation is a far lower probability event for those patients, and that's measurable. In fact, uh, there are doctors that are saying that they haven't intubated anyone since Omicron started in many major hospitals. And so I think what we're looking at here is a virus that spreads very readily, but is less virulent than previous viruses. In terms of that should be affected, are we talking about that in terms of reaching an endemic level? Narrator Joey jumping in again to give you another word definition. Tabitha used the word endemic. Endemic is more of a localized pandemic. So instead of being widespread throughout the world, it's widespread within a place or a population of people. You can think of an endemic as something like malaria. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. So we've achieved endemicity here, and, and that's where we're going to live with this virus now for, for quite a while. It's not a reasonable expectation to think that we're going to demolish and do away with SARS-CoV-2 entirely. But what we're going to be dealing with is some other Greek letter version of this <laughs> that's going to be just swimming around in our population. Every winter, we endure five to 10 respiratory viruses. We call them all the cold or the flu, but we actually endure two or three versions of flu. The human metanumovirus, the adenovirus, the rhinovirus. And so this virus, it's going to join the club. And it'll be in that winter club. I do not want to act like, hey, we're all better now, because what we're going to get to is a virus that has a lethality around influenza, which people might say wonderful, but public health people, the last thing we want, the medical community wants, is to be chasing around another influenza, okay? Because that's actually a fairly big deal that people don't talk about much. But that's where we're headed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Jim Falds, Janelle Woodward, Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, David Calvert, Dr. Mark Pandori, and Tabitha Mueller for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, suggestions on how to get rid of an ostrich that somehow snuck into your office and is now hiding its eggs around, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at theenvyindy.com or jacob at theenvyindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Suggestions on how to get rid of an ostrich that somehow snuck into your office and is now... (laughs) 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 Okay, that one. one Uh,